0: Today, we are used to thinking about the whole planet as a single unit, but for most of history, Earth was in fact an entire galaxy of isolated human worlds. Nat, Neil, thanks for humoring me again on Made You Think. Welcome back, Adil.
1: Welcome back. So if anyone hasn't listened to our part one episode of Sapiens, you should probably go do that first. You could listen to it in reverse order as well. That's that's fine, I suppose. But we're back for the second half of Sapiens with our good friend, Adil Majid to finish up the second half of the book, we got too excited last time, decided it made sense to go ahead, break it out in two episodes, a little experimental format. We went on a lot
2: of tangents last time, Lots which is, I expect we'll go on a lot of tangents this time as well, especially because, well, I don't know what you guys are drinking. I'm drinking mushroom coffee. I'm drinking mushroom coffee too. And that's always a recipe for tangents, which I like. Exactly. It's like, we can call it tangent coffee. <laughs> Maybe they'll make a special edition someday Exactly. of made you think tangent well, coffee. This
1: is the think blend of their mushroom coffees. <laughs> So it's quite perfect for this show. And if you want
2: some of your own, go to foursigmatic.com slash think. Get YouTube, your discount.
1: Exactly. And then Get
2: you too discount. can
1: go on tangents. <laughs> Tangent fuel. <laughs> All
2: right. So in the first
1: episode, we got through most of ancient history and transition to agriculture. And that kind of covers the first two books of Sapiens. And then books three and four are much more about the progression to a more modern culture. So he digs into a lot of the forces and mythology that brought us to where we are today Uh, and he kind of opens up book three with this chapter on the arrow of history and kind of how we slowly moved from as Adil said in the intro this really scattered unit or scattered collection of isolated human worlds to this more cohesive global civilization and most of the chapters that we cover in the next two books are related to that in some way.
2: Yeah so I guess so this section is called the Arrow of History." I mean, I think he starts by talking about, I like there's one section about cognitive dissonance. Third paragraph there. Oh, yeah, 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 right. okay, so I'm going to read this quote: "Cognitive dissonance is often considered a failure of the human psyche. In fact, it is a vital asset. Had people been unable to hold contradictory beliefs and values, it would probably have been impossible to establish and maintain any human culture. And I think like the example he uses, it came up earlier in the chapter, but I think it's a really useful um, sort of example to to tie like how we currently think about things. He uses Democrats and Republicans as an example of how there's two sets of beliefs in our society where you have one side that wants to kind of like effectively do things for the collective good. And then the other side wants to maximize individual freedom. And it's kind of interesting because if you think about it, those two sides sparring effectively is what creates the society. And you, you need both. It's like very interesting when he brought up that example where it's like, I don't know about you guys, I don't really fall on either side. But I noticed when he brought up this point, this cognitive dissonance thing, I even noticed that in myself. So like on one hand, if you ask me, do you believe in total like economic freedom? I'd be like, of course. And but then if you also ask me about a social safety net, I'd be like, of course. But those are like you can't get to the social safety net without taxing somebody unless the government somehow figures out how to make money, which is a stretch. (laughs) And then the other way is also you can't really have, if you have full economic freedom, that means you would not have, you know, some regulations, you wouldn't have taxes. And so I don't actually believe either of those two things. So there's a cognitive dissonant belief there.
1: Well, I was going to say that was my thing with reading this is that I'm not sure that's necessarily cognitive dissonance. It seems more just like we don't actually think in binaries, uh, right? Like we yeah. talk in binaries, but you don't actually believe in total economic
2: freedom, right? right? I'm kind of surprised you said that, right? Yeah. Because well, if you ask me, I would be like, do you think I can, I should be able to like, to a company or sell things like without restriction. I'd be like, sure, yeah. Those are different sense. questions. Yeah. You said total economic freedom. That's true. Right? The word total. And that's like is, serious. Right? Yeah. I don't think that you actually
1: believe it's a that. very good point. <laughs> right. That's a very Whereas, good point. Like, and you also don't totally believe in social safety net. Right. Right. It's you know, it, I feel like our answers to these things, if we're being honest, is Spectrums. sort of, yeah. right? It's like parts of it. And I feel like that intermeshing is not necessarily cognitive dissonance, right? Because you can believe in both of them at once. So I, I wish he had given, like, a little more examples here. Yeah. Because I'm not 100% sure what he means
2: exactly by cognitive dissonance. I think what he means is you, you, there's people with different beliefs that move a society in different directions, but you kind of need that tug of war. That's what I got from it. It's like...
1: But eh. uh, cognitive dissonance is an individual thing. Right, it is.
2: Right, it's not a society. But I think thing. he's extrapolating it to a societal level. That it's like a society doesn't necessarily just believe one thing.
1: I don't think that's true because he says, had people been unable to hold contradictory beliefs and values, it would probably have been impossible to establish and maintain any human culture. So it sounds like he's saying at the individual level, you need to be able to hold contradictions in your head. And he didn't really give many more examples
2: of the individual level. Yeah. So I don't know. So I thought the extrapolation because he brought up the parties. Yeah. So that would be an extrapolation to a group, but he didn't give any examples of the individual. So you're right. If he doesn't word it, as the group, but he words it as the individual, but then he didn't give any examples.
0: We definitely see a few around. You know, one might be when a religion says a religion of love, but all those who do not ascribe to the religion are condemned. Mm, That's yeah. one. That's seeing actually this, a good one. Yeah. Oh, the we're religion. seeing this one today is uh, America is like a melting pot. It's super open, but. We also have to clamp down on these damn immigrants, you know?
1: <laughs> well, but that's, I think that's a good example of like two different ideologies, right? Where it's like on one side you have the melting pot, on the other side you have the... But you'll
0: have the same people saying both. Really? Yeah.
1: You do see that with some people.
0: Not, not it's as not much it's mostly yeah. It's mostly two
1: opposite sides, but yeah, you're right. There are... But again, I think then it just comes back to degrees of scale. Because like, yeah. I would probably say both. I would say like, yes, we're a melting pot of cultures, but we should also be careful about who we let in, right? Yeah. Like those aren't necessarily contradictory, right? Like it's good to have some blending of culture, but not like too much. Yeah, so not right? total. Not like total. not use the word yeah, total. Yeah, like open borders. Yeah. Like that's a
2: ridiculous idea. Yeah. But having like somewhat open borders, like that's good. We need that. Yeah, so it's a spectrum kind of thing, not a one or really, not binary as yeah. you say. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's just beliefs are more fluid. I love the ethnic cuisine idea that he brought up. Oh yeah, or just like the history of food and all of that. Yeah, you want to read part of that. Yeah, I will read far. I'll just read that whole, I mean, it's a long quote, but we can just read the whole thing. So he goes, one of the most interesting examples of this globalization is ethnic cuisine. In an Italian restaurant, we expect to find spaghetti and tomato sauce. In Polish and Irish restaurants, lots of potatoes. In an Argentinian restaurant, we can choose between dozens of kinds of beef steaks. In an Indian restaurant, hot chilies are incorporated into just about everything. And the highlight at any Swiss cafe is thick hot chocolate under an alp of whipped cream. But none of these foods is native to those nations. Tomatoes, chili peppers, and cocoa are all Mexican in origin. They reached Europe and Asia only after the Spaniards conquered Mexico. Julius Caesar and Dante Alighieri never twirled tomato-drenched spaghetti on their forks. Even forks hadn't been invented yet. William Tell never tasted chocolate, and Buddha never spiced up his food with chili. Potatoes reached Poland and Ireland no more than 400 years ago. The only steak you could obtain in Argentina in 1492 was from a llama, I love that. (laughs) Some of the national identity stuff, like Argentinian steaks, is pretty fascinating. Or spicy Indian food.
1: There's a level above that too, which is like all of these examples he's giving, none of those states existed at those points either, right? Like if you think of yourself as Italian, like Italy hasn't really (laughs) been a state for 200 years, right? Like less, yeah, maybe more like hundred or India, right? Yeah, India like, was not a nation until the Brits yeah, left. That yeah, wasn't was really right. a thing until yeah. what 1800s, yeah, right. So, or and like Argentina, right? Like that wasn't a thing back yeah. in 1492, right? That's so the the idea of you know even this on another level is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Where most of our ideas of national identity themselves are kind of absurd.
2: Or like Mexican, even the word Mexican, yeah, right? like
1: Mexican, right? Yeah. it Doesn't have any like historical significance. It's yeah. like just a modern geographical terminology, right? But as a culture, it's not really, like, a historical
2: thing. I wonder if that's what makes it so hard to, like, put ourselves in the shoes of ancient people. Because, like, when we think of, like, people in what is now Mexico, we think of them as Mexicans just in a different society. Mm. Or, like, same thing with, like, actually, the India example is a really good one just because there was literally no thing called India. Like, it was a bunch of warring kingdoms and warring and allied kingdoms basically around the whole what is now India and Pakistan. But, like... It was only a foreign conqueror coming in that created this nation state. And I've heard the same thing for the Middle East. Like there's a lot of the states are just totally made up effectively by either the British or whoever else was there.
1: Well, that's one of the theories for why that's been, why there's been so much conflict there throughout history is that it was like Brits and other people came in and just started drawing arbitrary lines so we're like, this is a state, and this is a state, and like this is how we're breaking everything up. Yep. Whereas like before it was at least somewhat self-regulating with yeah. the natural city-state type. It's like a bottom-up versus top-down yeah, exactly. same in,
0: approach. Same in Africa.
2: Yeah. 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 Yep. Africa's a perfect example yeah. too. wonder, is South America more natural borders or are the borders drawn by... I know the Argentinian-Brazilian
1: border is natural, but...
2: okay. okay. Well, I was going to say because we haven't seen the same kind of conflict in South America that that you see in like the Middle East or Africa, but that could be a function of something else. Yeah, that's a a good question. Yeah, because I know like the Middle East, definitely there's like a bunch of minority populations that are just like completely screwed over by the way the lines are drawn.
1: Honestly, a big part of it could be religion too, right? There's no South American religion that's like nearly as intraviolent as Islam, right?
2: Mm. Like Sunni versus Shia. Yeah, exactly. I feel
1: like that seems to drive a lot of it in the Middle East. Deal. You look like you disagree.
0: No, no. I I'd read about the Sunni Shia history at one point, and I'm trying to remember some detail of that, but it's not coming back to me right now. Yeah, it's the descent. It's the oh, that's the air thing, yeah But it's they were largely peaceful for a long time. Mm-hmm. And oh, really yeah, you told only, me this. Yeah. yeah, it was really only the. I'm trying to remember what time frame, but sometime in the last like I want to say 50 years that the Iran Saudi tensions flared up, and yeah. under I, I just don't remember the details enough to dive into
1: yeah. it. Well, that was like, if you look at photos from, there's like University of Iran in the 50s and 60s, it looks like California
0: yeah, or something. Yeah, <laughs> I've like, seen
1: those. Yeah. yeah, it's just completely different states. So something, I wonder what changed. Right?
0: Well, the gist of what I had read is that there was other conflicts, but they used the ideas of the split religion to kind of separate the groups. Oh. So it was, that came after. And now that's the overgoing narrative. By the time it was, a, I believe it was an Iran-Saudi thing, but... I mean, that's might believe that, that. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, well, they're that's the two biggest it.
1: powers in the region, too, yeah. right?
2: All right, should we move to money?
1: Well, actually, so I, oh. the I think the transition here is that Harari introducing in this section is how like we have this very global culture now, and obviously it didn't always used to be like that. And his hypothesis, or at least what he's arguing, is that this really came from three different groups: so merchants, conquerors, and prophets, right? So it was money, states, and religion. ended up creating this more unified world. And that's how he breaks out the next few chapters. So the next one is money. And it seems like he is suggesting money was the first, right? That was really the first thing that started bridging like local separations, right? Because kind of like going back to what we were saying in the last episode about writing, right? Writing started as a way of recording financial debts. (laughs) And so it may have been too that money as, you know, the money and barter was a way for cities to start to interact with each other and start to have some elements of like shared culture, you know, shared resources, obviously, and that could have been kind of that first step.
2: And it also ties your, basically your destiny with somebody else mm. also. So it's a lot harder to go to war with that group if your shared prosperity is shared because you're trading with them. And probably I would also imagine when bartering started happening, people realized that if they specialize, a little bit more, they could probably do better, right? So it's like, well, I'm just going to use a soup. I think he uses shoes and apples, right? If like one place is really good for growing apples, and then you live in a desert, but you really like apples, I should probably figure out how to grow as many apples as possible because I can get all sorts of good stuff from you by giving you more apples. So probably there was some specialization too, but then that would mean that each region starts to become dependent on each other to get the things that they want. So I would. I kind of buy that, that money would have been one of the first, you know, would have been the first to sort of start tying people together. Well, and it kind
1: of creates the foundation for the other two, because I think you need money to build any kind of large state, right? Otherwise, there's no way for, like you said, the people to integrate or to rely on each other and have some sort of social cohesion, right? Just through bartering. And then I think religion springs naturally out of larger groups like that it'd be much harder for a religion to spread without an existing group of large people to initially adopt it
2: yeah because and then also they're intermingling a lot because you're trading from one person to the next and that person's trading with another person so you have a sort of shared base i guess to spread your religion
1: into and more interactions yeah like people talking to each other more you don't just have like a small animist religion in you know a little village you know suddenly now you're talking to all these other villages and you're sharing you know your stories and mythology and eventually one should win out. Yeah, eventually. Or I mean the thing he gets into in the next section or later on in the religious section was, you know, how polytheism was just super tolerant of lots of gods. Right. And so it was easy in so, those old civilizations
2: to just like accept everyone's gods and kind of like build them up into your own pantheon. Yep. But it also reminded me of celebs tyranny of the minority situation. So if if let's say you have ten groups and nine of those groups are okay accepting other people's gods, and then one person's group is like that's like completely not allowed. Yeah. That's the one that's probably going to be the one that spreads the most because all the other nine can accept that God, but you can't accept any God. So then, of course, that God is going to be the one that's part of all 10.
1: Yeah. Right. So just probably why Christianity won out against all the other. Or planets. all the monotheos. Or all the ones. Monothe- the, the monothe- yeah. Monothe- yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Yeah. Although... Judaism never really spread the same way that Christianity oh. and Islam did. But I guess it's not a missionary it's religion. Not a missionary religion. Yeah. Yeah. And they have a very restrictive way of joining the religion. Right. I think it's like your mother has to be, like Orthodox Jew is, mother yeah, believe the mother, believe has, the to mother be has to be Jewish. Yeah.
0: yeah. Actually interesting how the a lot of these things co-evolve. So Christianity was aided greatly by Constantine accepting Christianity and then spreading it through the Roman Empire. And then Islam right. was when Muhammad wrote to the local... Uh, I don't want to say local, but a number of the empires that were in the area, and then some of them adopted it, mm. and then started spreading much faster once it was in that country.
2: I wonder, I would love to dive into like what the process for that was. Like, how good was his copywriting? <laughs> Write a letter that would be like, "Hey, you know what? We're going to change our religion and adopt yeah. yours. You know, we, we buy yours more." <laughs> it is actually kind of crazy, right? I well, mean, I'd love to see. Like, I'd love to learn. I bet that's been someone I'm- has like researched that maybe more because Muhammad's is like yeah. a historical. Person yeah. right I mean it's the prophet Part is like a different you know yeah. it's a whole different thing yeah. I But I don't know if he flew to heaven on a winged horse No but, but, uh, but he was the, definitely around Yeah but the other historical nat- like Islam because it's recent enough that It sort of came up in what, Was like 600 something yeah. AD yes, exactly. Yeah so it's like it's recent enough Where there's writing there's enough historical Records it's not like Christianity is A very it's sort of at the cusp Of that and then Judaism is obviously Way back I mean it was Possibly even oral, right, first, and then... Almost certainly.
0: Written down, yeah. What I wonder is always, you know, now you have a unifying idea when you have a campaign, right? Like Obama's uh, will was forward in 2012 and then hope in 2008, and everyone believed in hope and going forward, so they crowded under Obama, right? I was always curious, you know, and Constantine first with that Christianity, was he like, oh, this is like a good unifying idea? And it, was it a political mm. crutch, or did Constantine look at it and say, you know, no, I accept Jesus, mm. and now I'm going to spread the good word? Interesting. I've always yeah. been curious about the intention. I'd like because someone at some point decided to do this, right? Right. right? So that's one, especially point where, especially right? that one because it's such yeah.
2: a clear decision point where they made that change. Yeah, it wasn't like a slow evolution. It was like, no, he decided.
0: And like I love Harari's, you know, he's pretty cold in a lot of the way he <laughs> writes this stuff down. He's like, this yeah. may happen, that may happen. You know, think about it. But this kind of adds a bit of color. You know, what was was Constantine up late at night? He's yeah. like, <laughs> Jesus, my Lord and Savior. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I mean, it could have also just been a, like, reaction to seeing how it was progressing socially, right? Where if you see that there's going to be, like, this, it's reaching a tipping point, and then also that you can conquer more lands if you're already, like, Christian, right? Especially in the Mediterranean area, right, where it would have been already really strong, then I feel like it would give him more power over the region by accepting it. So yeah. it could be that kind of, like, strategic conqueror decision as
2: well. Yeah, I can definitely see that.
1: Well, and also it's kind of like what Harari said in the book and Taleb said in Skin in the Game as well. It's like the Romans didn't get like super up in arms about being told that their gods were wrong, right? They're sort of like, oh, come on, guys, like that's not cool, right? Whereas Christians were like just murdering people for saying that, right? So if you want to pick one to like go with to create more like social stability makes sense, right? Go with the Christian God.
2: Especially if there was maybe inklings of like a rebellion of some sort or like right. social destabilization. And yeah, it might have also just been a, hey, uh, we need to do this for our own good yeah, kind safety. of thing. Oh, <laughs> for our safety. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, or
1: else like revolt and create like an entirely kind of Pope-led state, right? Mm-hmm. Religious
0: state. A lot of the wrinkles in how these spread is really interesting, like what we were just speculating on. But what I find most fascinating is if you just go one layer above, like one layer of abstraction higher, The properties of the religions that have spread the most, if you were just, you know, brainstorming behind the veil, you haven't seen any of the actual religions in the world, and you're listing properties of what would be a successful religion, Mm. you know, one that has a missionary component, and allows defense through violence, Mm. and it has rewards and punishments that are kind of opaque, right after you die, so you can't really prove or disprove it. And then you look in the real world and that matches really closely with the successful religions. It's almost yeah. this, again, it's a cold evolutionary process where no matter what, I mean, had Constantine not adopted Christianity, then, you know, perhaps in a different empire, right. a different religion with the yeah. same yeah. properties.
1: Yep. No, that's super true. Because it's like Christianity and Islam are probably the most successful religions. And they're definitely the ones that have the most of those properties. Oh, yeah right? Like Jainism is right. not particularly not aggressive sure. about spreading. Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: you know, there's a reason it stayed fairly small. Though, right. Too. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I guess to your point, it's like, even if it wasn't Christianity, there could have been a very similar religion that popped up or a religion with the same properties that would have probably spread, you know, just that. So maybe it's an accident that that particular religion spread, but those properties are not an accident yeah. that, that led to the spreading.
0: In that same vein, I wonder if the more peaceful, ideologies i mean i don't want to say more peaceful but you know might not be pc but you get the idea right the ones that are not missionary religions don't have those properties i wonder if they're aided at all by the internet because mm, you can now like have, buddhism i would definitely say yeah. has been yeah by the yeah. internet for sure uh, that's actually exactly yeah. the one i was thinking about yeah. now that meditation is big so culture is spreading it and there's yeah. a different tool in the arsenal
2: huh yeah which it besides war and fighting yeah. and yeah that's interesting. This is a complete tangent now, but Buddhism, <laughs> Buddhism. I like? I always assumed it was like super peaceful because yeah. it's like what it definitely seems like. But I have heard there's like this whole thing going on in I forget where in Asia. These like Buddhist monks are like murdering Muslims. Oh yeah, for something. I mean, where, no religion is where. Uh, where is that? Is that Thailand or is it? It's somewhere. I don't know where. Yeah, it was like. Is it the Philippines? It's somewhere in East Asia. I guess we we could look it up. Yeah, people just, are violent. Well, no, it's, I just yeah. never. I just like was curious if there's a particular sect of Buddhism that allows for violence like that. Yeah, I don't know. because as you, we were talking about the properties of religions, right? Yeah. Like that was one that you would assume would have a lot of trouble spreading and defending itself, just because there's yeah. not really like it's not really an accepted behavior in the same way like Christianity and Islam would. You know, say that's like okay. Yeah. And also, Buddhism doesn't really care about non-believers versus believers. There's not really a belief-driven. Really
1: belief. Yeah. yeah. Well, in some sects of Buddhism, there is because it's like spirits around you and all that. It really depends on which kind of like school you're in. But I feel like the more traditional, just like, or especially like Zen Buddhism. Yeah. Right? Like there's no beliefs. Yeah. Like. <laughs> but I could see how some of the more like Indian, Southern Asian Buddhist sects, because they've got way more mythology behind them, that could go in a lot more different directions. Yeah.
0: Harari also classifies political beliefs as religions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I find fascinating is that, you know, someone will die for it. They definitely sanction violence.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, so it's uh, it's Sri Lanka. It's, it's wild. It so four at least 40 were killed by monks. That's crazy. They, like, attacked a, a mosque. I'll have to dive into, like, why that is. I'm very curious. But you were right, though, about the South Asian. It was the South Asian sect. Well, I remember that when we did... Um... Way of Zen. Way of Zen,
1: yeah. Where he was talking about all the different kinds of Buddhism, and it's just so different yeah. in Southern Asia versus, you know, like, Japanese. Yeah, Southern Chinese. Yeah, or even Chinese, too, right?
2: But yeah,
0: you're right. He classifies political uh, yeah. beliefs as similar. And uh, I have the quote right here. The modern age has witnessed the rise of a number of new natural law religions, such as liberalism, communism, capitalism, nationalism, and Nazism. If a religion is a system of human norms and values that is founded on belief in a superhuman order, then Soviet communism was no less a religion than Islam.
1: It makes sense, right? It's I feel like we think of it differently because there's no like temples and, you know, clear deity. But it's pretty easy to like adjust the thinking, right? Like the deity is yeah. the state. Or it's well, the, the temples, or it's money. Well, the, the
0: temples, temples are, are like Thomas Jefferson Memorial. Right, Our deity is the statue inside. Yeah, that's a good one too.
2: Yeah, it's um or like the Lincoln Memorial or something like that. Right, it's like they go from individuals to being like these sort of perfect ideas. Which aren't really...
1: Well, the God is like the Constitution. Yeah. And then, like, the Founding We're Fathers on. and Presidents and stuff are sort of the, the
2: polytheistic head. pantheon below it, right? I was going to say, like, the Bible is like the Constitution, almost. It's like the rule book, Yeah. In some ways, right? It's and then... Good. But yeah, you're right. Like, the Founding Fathers are sort of the, the, the pantheon, pantheon of, of God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm, I'm like a Ben Franklin. Which yeah. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. But there are. Like, if someone's debating the Fed, for instance, they'll bring up, like, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. I don't know who they pawns him against, but...
1: Well, and actually, that's a perfect example, too, oh, because... Yeah.
0: People arguing in Christianity, right,
1: would compare, like, what different, I guess, like, early, what do you call them? Well, Catholicism
2: is effectively polytheistic. Yeah. Right? With, like, all the saints. saints saints. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's kind of what Harari talks about in the book is that it was basically designed to be polytheistic (laughs) to make it more okay (laughs) to the polytheistic locals, right? Like, I love the example of Ireland oh right yeah like they they had a local god called bridget yeah right yeah. A, lo- a local god and so then when catholicism got there they just added bridget to the pantheon of saints and so saint bridget and now that's like the most worshiped saint in catholic ireland right right so it's it a was back- just like completely made up yeah.
0: <laughs> to make it more uh palatable the other parallel is like you know if you change from being a democrat to a republican mm-hmm. it is about as theatrical as mm. converting from like you know Judaism to Christianity. Oh right? yeah, <laughs> depending on your family, right? Yeah. They'll like yeah, write you off. Really good boy. Yeah. <laughs> you lose friends, right? <laughs> this quote is good. But in all frankness, how long can we maintain the wall separating the Department of Biology from the departments of Law and Political Science? <laughs> 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 the guy he's just he just shines sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, so he's got
1: these three forces, right? Money, religion, empire, and those kind of brought everyone together right? That's what created the more unified global world that we have today. And then from that, he kind of moves into the next section, which is, all right, now how did we sort of like function and continue to grow as a species once we were all bound together, right? And this is where he gets into like science. Uh, Science is kind of like the big one and then more advanced stuff on money and industry and all of that. So we can actually hop into that now with, we've got this chapter on the secret of success, right? Which I thought was fun because we just did postmodernism Lat two weeks ago right so he's talking about how there's this idea of memetics which originally i think comes from richard dawkins right for selfish gene
2: i think so or at yeah. least he popularized, he popularized it very very it, definitely. Yeah.
1: yeah well actually no it comes from um who's the philosopher that peterson likes nietzsche no no the german one friends of freud
2: oh Jung. Jung.
1: yeah yeah i think a psychologist yeah a psychologist yeah. that's right um, psychoanalyst i think he was one of the original popularizers of, of
2: the meme okay yeah
1: but anyway, so. Uh, What Harari is saying here is that a lot of scholars disdain memetics, seeing it as an amateurish attempt to explain cultural processes with crude biological analogies. But many of these same scholars adhere to memetics' twin sister, postmodernism. Postmodernist thinkers speak about discourses rather than memes as the building blocks of culture. Yet they, too, see culture as propagating themselves with little regard for the benefit of humankind. So... This is kind of like the next stage of evolution, right, is ideas and, you know, philosophies and shared myths moving at kind of like a hyper speed through this now globalized culture that we developed from the last section.
2: Yeah. And it's also interesting that one thought that came to mind as you were reading that quote was how we kind of have gone from these islands to this like interconnected web, which probably means well, we're already seeing it, I think you and I have talked about it, not on a podcast, but we have definitely talked about it. How, like, effectively the world's cultures seem to all be merging into one. Like, how, when you go to like London versus like Paris versus New York versus LA, it's the same stores, the same companies, people listen to the same music pretty much, watch the same movies, and oftentimes eat the same foods too. Yeah. Right. So, it's kind of like led to this one culture as opposed to these isolated islands, which is interesting. But at the same time, the sort of opposition thought to that is that on the internet, there are tons of like random small communities of just like, like if you just go to Reddit, like the amount of wild subreddits that are out there for every possible thing. Yeah. That's like your islands again. And then we kind of effectively create our own islands with the internet too by like the filters we use and the people we follow and what we read. So in a weird way, it's like it's not a physical island anymore of culture, but there's like mental islands that you can put yourself on. Like, think about certain memes or jokes that just perpetuate within small communities that most people would have no idea what you're talking about. Like, Pepe the Frog or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> I didn't know about that till that became mainstream. But apparently that's been a joke for, like, a long time in that community. I had no yeah. idea. Well, it was an old meme for
1: a long time. Yeah. Right? It was, like, an old 4chan meme.
2: But it being, 4chan. like, <laughs> yeah.
1: being absorbed into the kind of, like, pro-Trump crowd, that yeah. was pre modern.
2: Yeah. But yeah, but you see what I mean with like 4chan crowd had its own, you know, popular meme, which like was outside the mainstream. Before in a
1: culture, you couldn't really have like a subculture that was hidden. Yep, that's exactly what I mean. But each of us are in like tons of subcultures now that, you know, probably like most of our friends don't even know about. Right. Right. Like unless they are also a member of it, but there's no need for them to overlap because we can kind of do everything behind the screens now. It's pretty easy to separate out those different parts of your life.
2: Yeah. So I don't know where I was going with that, whether it's like memes that have anything to do with anything, but it's more that just like, yeah, we kind of like don't have this overarching cultural island set up anymore, but we do behind our computers basically or inside of our our machines. Well, from there, he
1: dives into science and he's basically saying that we had this turning point where we went from just kind of assuming we knew what was in the world to assuming we didn't. And I love the example he gives about Maps. So he says during the 15th and 16th centuries, Europeans began to draw world maps with lots of empty spaces. One indication of the development of the scientific mindset, as well as of the European imperial drive. The empty maps were a psychological and ideological breakthrough, a clear admission that Europeans were ignorant of large parts of the world. Because before that, they uh, oh yeah, he says before that unfamiliar areas were simply left out or filled with imaginary monsters and wonders. These maps had no empty spaces. They gave the impression of a familiarity with the entire world, right? And then we just that mindset completely shifted to okay, well we don't know what else is out there, and like let's go find it. And yeah. that kind of shift has been it was I mean it was huge for European dominance. He basically says that was why Europeans ended up dominating Asian empires. Was that most of the Asian empires were content with like what they knew in their life as it was. Whereas the European obsession with figuring out everything you don't know kind of led to all this scientific advancement, all this imperialism, sort of like all the growth that we have today.
0: I, I was thinking this when you mentioned the memes changing globally, like you go somewhere, you see the same restaurants, but I think it's relevant here as well, is most of this is driven just by greed. And money, right? Like the reason mm-hmm. the physical locations are same in every city you go is because as soon as the McDonald's shows up, the local burger place just can't compete on cost. And because the under, like the motivation is always money. So if you're trying to, you know, live cheap, then you're going to go to the cheaper location, right? So as a result, McDonald's propagates everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the European exploration was not about scientific discovery. Like some of it was, and there's notable examples like Magellan was, you know, going to circumnavigate the globe. And so it's not the rule. But it seems like the general case was you want to go to the new world and find gold.
2: Yeah, that was a big, definitely a big motivation. You know, opening yeah. trade routes, which again <laughs> yeah. is
0: about a financial thing. And then along the way, you made these other discoveries that you know were largely accidental, but always on the pursuit of some kind of new wealth.
2: That's why I'm actually incredibly bullish on space exploration right now, because a lot more of the use cases people are talking about are greed-based which is like like you're talk like you hear a lot more and there are more companies more and more companies being funded now around like mining and even like like basically it's for money now instead of so NASA is like obviously it was necessary to get things off the ground ha, ha pun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <it's> like, <laughs> that was a horrible one <laughs> hey, it's 12:30 give me a break <laughs> um, but uh, it was necessary for like the scientific discovery part but i think like moving forward it would be tough to imagine a world where like we do go in a, in the same way as like the Europeans discovering the rest of the world yeah. where humans go discover the rest of our galaxy off the drive of scientific pursuit of knowledge. It's a bit like- I could definitely see the greed part being the driver. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the same with electric vehicles, too, or like even sustainability. A lot of companies that actually make good movements into sustainable practices, it's really to save money because <laughs> like yeah. using less material is Sure, it's good for the environment, but they also spend less money on materials. So yeah, there's definitely some of that, too. It's like the towels in hotels. Yep,
1: right? exactly. Please help love protect that the environment by reusing your towels. Like, but no, they have no, less no. laundry. No, you don't want yeah. to do as much laundry because
2: <laughs> yeah. you save like millions of dollars a year yep, on laundry exactly. if you convince
1: us to be you know, good consumers. That's exactly
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, so I actually I think your point on the greed thing is really good. I think that's a really strong drive. It's like you need both. I think you need both. You definitely yeah. need both. I think the scientific discovery part gets it started. But then it's like people realize there's money to be made and then they're like, okay, yeah, let's go do
0: this. This is like one of the areas where, you know, there's so many of the ideas Harari points out that spread because they are able to spread but are detrimental. But this Mm. is one case, I guess, because greed is not always good. No. Uh, <laughs> it's not. I'm not saying it's good. Yeah. I'm just saying like, it's like yeah. I'm not even saying the space I wasn't saying thing you were is saying good. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's just like it seems to be the driver that yeah. makes people move forward like in this case too.
0: Yeah. Well, but I guess like,
2: they couldn't know that there was money to be made until someone had done some
1: like initial exploring. Well, yeah, but the initial exploring was to try to find a faster route to Asia yes. for trade, yep. right? So that was financial, too. That's true. <laughs> yeah, even that wasn't. Like it was ever. like, oh, shit, there's a lot of uh, people we can beat the shit out of yeah. and gold we can take. So
2: let's do that instead. Was Magellan's purely a scientific thing? Because he wanted to circumnavigate the yeah. world, right? It's or was taught
1: it? that way in schools, but I'm sure. well, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a different motivation there. It could also
2: just be to be famous. Yeah, it's always good motivation, too have you ever this is a super random thing to ever go down yeah. the wikipedia rabbit hole for yeah. but the funding of these types of explorations
0: oh i haven't that's really interesting it's
2: straight up like vc really basically they would fund the whole thing and then they'd be like you owe us like 50 percent of whatever the proceeds are in the trip but wow. most of these things turned into nothing but the ones that did would be like 100x return
0: <laughs> so from uh from history.com the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan is often credited as being the first person to have circumnavigated the globe, but the reality of his journey is a bit more complicated. Magellan first set sail as part of an attempt to find a western route to the spice-rich East Indies in modern-day Indonesia. Okay. It's always yep. money. <laughs> <A
1: long time. laughs> but wait, so what happened then? Did he, like, get lost? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I, I narrative, that was, story. was a narrative
2: like a narrative yeah. change along then the way. And he gets back he's like, guess what I <laughs> did.
0: <laughs> it doesn't talk about whether he made it to the East Indies but it does mention that he picked up a slave in Southwest Asia on a previous voyage, took him to Europe and then kept him on the ship when he started circumnavigating. So the slave actually made it halfway around the earth again. So he actually circumnavigated it first. Oh. <laughs> so their conclusion is that this guy Enrique may deserve true credit for being the first person to circumnavigate the globe. I
1: don't think That's you get awesome. credit for like tagging along. Right? <laughs> I don't write the rules. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. yeah. Wait, Magellan was before Columbus or after?
2: No, I think he was after. after. I think he was after, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, I guess he would have had to. Yeah. It's probably I inspired guess they never by... found that route to the East Indies. Yeah. <laughs> Just kept looking.
0: Well, no, they did because they uh, they found Strait of Magellan, and then they actually meet, he died in the Philippines. Although yeah. I think they went they went westward; they didn't go east. Well, I I more just meant that like people kept looking
1: for it after Oh, campus, right? Yeah, <laughs> they never gave up. Yeah, it seems like once you realize there's a giant continent in the way, you would give up on finding a shortcut over there. But
2: <laughs> yeah, you'd think.
1: Although, I guess if you're coming from Europe, getting to the East Indies is actually kind of a nightmare because you'd have to like go all the way down around, around Africa. Africa and-
2: yeah. That trip takes a long time. From I mean, even in World War II, they were doing that. For The Brits were doing that to get to India because there was all the land in the middle that like the Germans had taken over. Oh, damn. So, they were like, oh, yeah, we can't go supply our bases there that way. So, they were going all the way around Africa. Damn. I think it was like a three-week trip or something, even with like powered ships. So, imagine yeah. the 1400s. Like fourteen hundred ish time frame. Yeah. There's
0: something interesting about the British. When they went to India, they actually introduced tea to India. Right.
2: Yeah, right. That came up a little while ago in the in the book. But it's
0: but the fascinating thing crazy. I read was uh, the name that locals use for tea in different parts of the world is actually based on where the tea how the tea got there. So if it got there by boat, it's tea. If it got there by land, it's chai. Huh. And this is a bit almost universally true. I couldn't find any exceptions to this. Interesting. Yeah. There's a great article. That's so cool. It's uh, teeth by sea, chaff by land. We, I believe it was that word. Oh, yeah. One it. of yeah. us sent it to each other. Yeah. I've never yeah, seen yeah. that
2: article. I'd love it's to read that. Cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. And that's true even in like China and Yeah. Japan in and Chinese, I believe it's cha. Huh. Yeah. That's so cool. And in Turkey, it's chai. In Pakistan, it's chai. That's so yeah. cool. But then in Latin America, it's tea. Yeah.
1: tea, Yeah. Huh. Yeah france is also tea maybe there's some exceptions well that actually that could have <laughs> gotten there by sea as well right where did tea originate i have no idea that's actually a very good question well, where did it start actually you know it probably started in asia right so like let's say china and then it probably got to europe by boat which would be how it became tea southwest china yeah so tea originated in southwest china so i would bet that it got to western europe by boat not by land
0: Chinese merchants
1: yeah and that would explain South America as well, mm. but then and then in India it's by land, right? So, cha. right. So,
2: and in the Middle East, probably
1: Middle yeah, East too. So, yeah, yeah. it's kind of cool. Interesting.
2: Well, it's like it, it does speak to a lot of the stuff he's talking about here, right? Where it's like merchants effectively have driven so much of culture, like almost well, not almost. It is an inadvertent manner. But yeah, it's like for the tea thing, it's exactly that. Well, and I, I love this whole next chapter on capitalism.
1: Yeah. Because I didn't realize sort of how big a deal credit was, right? Where he spends a lot of time in the beginning of this section explaining how, you know, banks can lend out $9 for every $1 they hold in reserves, right? And that creates this like crazy, you know, positive feedback loop in the society where people can get money to do stuff and create more value and then, you know, fund the banks more and the banks lend out more money and create more value. And that kind of like created all the growth we had today. If we didn't have that and you just had like one-to-one lending, then the amount of things you could do was extremely limited, right? Because there's no way that you could fund any new venture unless you kind of like already had the money or some like collateral for it, right? which made it basically impossible for anyone to do something entrepreneurial without like getting a grant.
2: And also the people who had the money would probably be the least motivated to do it because it's like, if you already have the money, then you don't need more money, (laughs) right? Well, Uh, and it's protective against the problem he
1: points out with, you know, the pure capitalism theory, right? Because the the pure invisible hand of the market type stuff is like, oh, you know, if somebody makes more money, they will create more business and like more stuff. It's like, well, partially, but they'll also just hold more money. Hold on to it. Yeah. Right. And so by having some amount of credit in the system, you counteract that, Right. right? Where it's like, okay. You know, Neil made a million dollars. Yay, Neil! <laughs> 500K <laughs> in the bank and 500K into other ventures. But that 500K you put in the bank now is also $4.5 million in funding that can go to other people, right? So even though you're holding it, which is bad, the bank turns it into a good thing. It kind of like counteracts the negative feedback loop in the process. Which is probably
2: why I just realized, you know how we were talking at dinner the other day about how it used to be illegal to hold gold? Yeah. Maybe that was why. I'll to own separate. gold, because yeah. if you owned gold, it wasn't in the bank. Oh, that and was if it's wild. not in the banking system, yeah. It was
0: after the Great Depression. It was because people, because the dollar was, I think, it was inflating so rapidly, or maybe it was just because having it in gold made it illiquid. They banned private ownership of gold.
2: So yeah, to your point, it's like if I held 500k in gold in my house, right. or in my safe, it can't be lent out to anybody. But if I deposit five hundred thousand dollars in a bank account, then the bank can turn that into four and a half million. And then those people can use that for new ventures or houses or cars or whatever. And by buying houses they gotta employ construction workers and there's a whole lot yeah, it's like a chain. We need uh
1: we need crypto loans to become more
2: <laughs> like globally acceptable now because people are holding so much money in crypto although you can't yeah. do it
1: there are there you are can do it
2: right i guess it's yeah, because yeah. the assets so volatile maybe Definitely. it's so tough to i don't know i haven't looked into it too much yeah but that would create a crypto economy yeah like, much more effective better one right if they could figure out a good way to do if it just, if everybody's just holding currency in their wallets it's not being lent out then it, it's kind of yeah that's actually a really good point yeah because the dollar economy is probably so big like only because of credit well, any economy, is yeah, economy. It is actually kind of a problem. Yeah, yeah. because I, I know,
1: like, for me, I treat all the crypto stuff as much more store of value Same. and I don't want to spend it or use it.
0: Yeah. But, like, I've never, I haven't spent it. Well, that's anymore. largely a function of volatility. If the prices were stable, if it wasn't going to be a trillion dollars next week, then yeah. you would spend it, right? <laughs> it's April Fool's Day when we're recording this, also. So. <laughs> and, and Bitcoin
1: is below $7,000. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Everyone is sad. <laughs>
1: I believe ethereum's below 400 hey I
0: believe it. <laughs> <laughs> he called it yeah, you've been calling true. this for a while i mean it's either gonna go up or down so yeah. half the people hey. have called it all right yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> i thought you were saying i thought you were about to make a prediction and be like well it's either gonna go up or down <laughs> <laughs> you're like, okay and it's 50 50 it's, the yeah. it's, 50-50, it's like playing roulette and, and uh betting on like you know uh evens or odds but then it's the zero yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> the green square uh oh i love the wall street anecdote oh yeah it's just a cool little i didn't know that before reading the book neither did i that's pretty interesting um so i'll read this out loud in order to control trade on the important hudson river wic which was west indies company built a settlement called new amsterdam on an island at the river's mouth the colony was threatened by indians and repeatedly attacked by the british who eventually captured it in 1664 the british changed its name to new york the remains of the wall built by WIC to defend its colony against Indians and British are today paved over by the world's most famous street, Wall Street. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I never knew that. It's also cool, like to see, um, like just there are like the city you know used to be New Amsterdam. There's some random like Dutch things still in the city. I'm, I'm blanking on like in a good example, but there are definitely some streets which will be like Van something oh, Street, yeah. right? And then you're like, okay, that's interesting because that's a Dutch name. Yeah, it's probably wonder- down in like five. Yeah, Fidei, right. Yeah, yeah, definitely below the numbered streets, but like closer to Wall Street, you can find things like that. Cool, or even in Brooklyn, too, which is interesting because I don't think Brooklyn was part of New Amsterdam, but it was probably there were probably similar people. Could have been there, like, yeah, the less rich part of the city, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's a living across possible. Yeah, <laughs> what were we about the. say? <laughs> <laughs> I know you just held your tongue back. To right? It's kind of
1: like today, but. <laughs> Although that's not fully it's, not, Brooklyn it's not fully true, it's not anymore. Yeah, yeah no, it's Brooklyn. true. Brooklyn's like nice and hipstery you now. You go back 20 years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. different.
2: The bridge and tunnel folk. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Uh, I didn't know much about this Chinese and British war. That, that happened. Was this was all new for yeah,
1: me. I thought that was super interesting. Basically, the British wanted lots of opium and they wanted the Chinese to let them just like farm opium and, you know, track it all out. And then what was it? something like a fifth of the Chinese population was hooked on opium. So they tried to ban opium farming. And then the British just went in and started a war in the name of free trade in order to get them to, you know, change it. And so British completely like trounced the Chinese. They kept Hong Kong until 1997. Uh, and then China went back to farming opium for the British.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I never knew about that war. I mean, I knew there was a war at some point, but I didn't know what caused it. I also found it very interesting that the MPs and cabinet ministers who held yeah, exactly, stock at the yeah. drug companies, <laughs> they were the ones who were losing their money, it was the people in
1: government who had invested in it. Some things don't change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess that's sort of what he's getting at in the end of this section too, yeah. is that that's the one problem with free market capitalism, is that you can't be sure that it's doing good things, right? Like it's going to create growth, but you don't know if it's like growing in a good direction, right? right. Or with good goals. And so there needs to be like some sort of check on it, right? Where I basically says, on the contrary, the craving to increase profits and production blinds people to anything that might stand in the way. When growth becomes a supreme good unrestricted by any other ethical considerations, it can easily lead to catastrophe. Some religions such as Christianity and Nazism have killed millions out of burning hatred
2: capitalism has killed millions out of cold indifference coupled with greed i think the last part of that's really interesting too where uh, he goes the atlantic slave trade did not stem from racist hatred towards africans that part's debatable uh the individuals who bought the shares the brokers who sold them and the managers of the slave trade companies rarely thought about the africans nor did the owners of the sugar plantations many owners lived far from their plantations and the only information they demanded were neat ledgers of profits and losses i think that's pretty interesting yeah. It seems
0: like he could have made the argument without trying to prove that racism wasn't a part of it. Yeah, well, but I don't ultimately, think ultimately the time. root of it was still about money. Right? Yes, Free I think. Labor. Well, I think what
1: he's but I don't it. think slave labor came out of ra- like no, we've had slaves for way. all of right. history, yeah, right? Yeah, like no, I think right. racism towards blacks in America at least came out of slavery, right?
2: Came out of slavery. I was going to yeah. say that part of it. Uh, I think, well, it could have started from racism that like, oh, we'll take these brutes in Africa from, you know. Well, no, birth. but
1: like Europeans weren't going into Africa and like capturing people and making them slaves. Like Africans were selling other, we're Africans, selling other Africans to Africans, Europeans, right? S-
2: most of the time, but there were definitely. Yeah, Europeans I think there was definitely in, some going Yeah, around, like, Well, I think the point he was trying to make here is that the reason it grew so big is because of the capitalism part yeah. of it, right? It's yeah. like, well, they that's they the reason it, start it started in it the first place. This, yeah, 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 otherwise yeah. it would have just been this like isolated thing. But it became so big because so many people were making so much money off of it, and it, it had this whole system. and the owners themselves of the slaves, they might not have ever even interacted with slaves. It would have been like buying would have been like I always think about like Mechanical Turk or oh. something like that or like um fancy hands or any of the the things yeah. where you know we just type something into like a little request thing and then a human goes and does it on the other end. But like we would never know who that human is or like what they're doing. I I kind of, when I read this, I kind of imagined it. I'm not saying people who work for fancy hands are slaves. <laughs> what I'm saying is like for those owners, it was probably a similar thing where it's like, Oh, I bought the slave and my profits went up. Right. And that's well, like, and to them, maybe. it was like numbers on a screen. Exactly.
1: Right. Yeah. Yep. Which is why sometimes when you hear these stories about like Apple plants in China or whatever, like, you know, people being like severely underpaid or like horrible working conditions and stuff. It's like on some level you, you, it's not hard to believe that they actually had
0: no idea. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Tim Cook's office is not in a Foxconn factory. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it's definitely interesting to see that these, like, capitalism for sure has, like, the potential to make people blind, like, willingly blind to these kinds of things. Right. Because the system doesn't have the check for that, right? There's, like, nothing, there's no part of that system that is regulating that part if you're just viewing it through a capitalist lens. Like, there's no government or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah which is where some of that other regulation ends up becoming necessary. But that basically like that system of creating more and more wealth created what he then goes into, which is this like industrial world, right? Where it's much more into the industrial revolution. And it's kind of just like this mentality shift of, you know, doing things for like fun, uh, and, <laughs> and for just like optimizing, you know, for yourself to doing things for like building stuff larger than yourself and like building business, right? He uses like gunpowder as an example where it was, you know, originally just like a toy, right? For making firecrackers. And then it took like 600 years for people to realize that it could be used for projectiles, right? Yeah. Or uh, steam engines, another great example, right? Like apparently ancient Romans had basically like steam powered toys. Yeah. I for remember their kids. reading about that. Yeah. Yeah. But it took, you know, 2,000 or almost 2,000 years people to realize that, oh, we could actually use this to
2: like pull stuff. And I heard that the, uh, maybe that was in Sapiens or somewhere else, that the Aztecs had wheels, but they only had it on toys. Yeah, exactly. They didn't they have, didn't have it, it on their it for, like, carts and stuff. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is amazing.
1: Well, it's kind of like today, right? It's like the engineers and the tinkerers figure some stuff out and then, you know, they're doing it for fun or whatever. And then scientists come along and explain it, right? Like, teaching birds how to fly, that kind of thing. And then also somebody figures out, okay, well, we could actually use this for, like, uh, a product or financial thing,
2: right? I wonder if, like, certain, like, the next big insight or the next cool technology is going to come out of, like, video games or something. This is weirdly maybe one area where, like, eSports could lead to some interesting advances around, like, monetizing attention. Oh, yeah. You know how, like, there is a lot of debate among, like, cable companies and obviously like Netflix and and all these things are digging into sales of companies that make TV shows or that have channels Uh, like ESPN has a lot of trouble. And so I'm wondering like if the next big advance in that field is going to just come from esports just because now there's like a monetary incentive to solve it. And then there's almost such a big sample size of people like watching and playing. And it's also one of those weird markets where people who watch can also play. Right. Whereas like I mean, if you like watching basketball, you're not going to be playing in the NBA finals. It's <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen, right? But whereas esports, it's like one of those things where you could be like, I really like watching people play like, you know, Fortnite or something, right? And I could just go download and play myself now, yeah, right? And uh, maybe you won't be as good, but you could hope that one day you could be as good. <laughs> you can at least emulate <laughs> it. In there. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know. I wonder if like that type of infrastructure market would lead to more tinkering and advances just within that micro type of field, but... That could then apply to maybe monetizing attention in other fields.
1: Well, I think stuff like Twitch is pretty cool, yeah.
2: right? Yep. Where the, I
1: mean, it's a massive business and it's all just about like watching other people do things on their computers, yeah, right? And you never would have expected that <laughs> no. to become like a multi-billion dollar industry, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm sure, I don't even know if they expected it, right? Yeah, probably. I think they were just like, you know, hardcore video game nerds. And they were like, yo, I want a way to watch this. Yeah. And now, you know, you go on any anytime and there's millions of people on it, like watching people mostly play video games live. And that's all been monetized in cool ways where it's like you get, you know, bonus stuff in the games if you like watch people play them and you can like pay people that you follow to... You know, you can support them with like $5 a month. and you find out when they're streaming and stuff. But then you can also pay to send them messages while they're streaming. Mm. And then like their messages will pop up on their screen, like while they're playing. And so they can respond to you in real time, kind of like as they're going. But then there's also the chat along the side. So everybody who's watching can talk to each other. Right? It's, it's a very cool system. <laughs> it's like a community. It's like very interesting community that's popped up. Yeah. Well, it goes back yeah. to the whole micro communities idea right? yeah. where now you can kind of like bond around these other things. But you also see people use Twitch for like programming. Right, right. And like yeah, talking about the programming as they're going or <laughs> writing or I'm sure
2: there's sure people who do it for design, right? Things like that. It's kind of cool. Oh, actually, this is, that's really related to this imagined communities okay. thing. Cause we're just talking about these like micro communities that have popped up. Yeah. You see where it says like prior to the industrial revolution. So this brings up something that I, I'll just read it from the book, but I think it's very much related to what you were just talking about with these micro communities online and, and elsewhere. Um, so for, this is from the book. Prior to the industrial revolution, the daily life of most humans ran its course within three ancient frames, the nuclear family, the extended family, and the local intimate community. Most people worked in the family business, the family farm or the family workshop, for example, or they worked in their neighbor's family business. The family was also the welfare system, the health system, the education system, the construction industry, the trade union, pension fund, insurance company, radio, television, newspapers, the bank, and even the police. Throughout history, such imagined communities played second fiddle to intimate communities of several dozen people who knew each other well. The intimate communities fulfilled the emotional needs of their members and were essential for everyone's survival and welfare. In the last two centuries, the intimate communities have withered, leaving imagined communities to fill in the emotional vacuum. The two most important examples for the rise of such imagined communities are the nation and the consumer tribe.
0: There's a 2000 book called Bowling Alone. It's by this guy, Robert Putnam. And what it's about is you know how the american like physical communities are in decline mm-hmm. so you know fewer churchgoers and the title actually stemmed from the morning bowling clubs kind of mm-hmm. like the romanticized yeah. like 50s and how those have declined and he actually argues that it has a damaging effect on democracy and like civil engagement but it's written in 2000 and you know since then you have the internet subcommunities that are now replacing those So even here, you know, he's saying it's imagined communities are the nation and the consumer tribe, but all the way down to like a subreddit, right? Like you could almost argue that the Donald, I think some people have put this argument for that the Donald in many ways made the guy president or the Donald subreddit. Yeah. At least one of the big factors. Yeah. 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 But I mean, that's as imagined as it gets. It's on a, you know, it's on Reddit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A few lines
1: of computer code.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think the one key difference there is between those communities and I guess the communities that he was probably talking about in the book, yeah. I haven't read the book so I don't know for sure, are just that it's easier to like dehumanize someone behind a screen. Right? That's- it's like way easier whereas if you interact with somebody in real life, it's like pretty hard to dehumanize. It still yeah, happens, yeah. has happened plenty of times throughout history, so it's not like impossible, but yeah. It's just like very easy on the internet to be like, ah, you have, you're have you an idiot and like, or way worse than that, right? Behind
0: the screen. But you wouldn't say that necessarily in real life. What I wonder about how these internet communities will affect us over the long run. I think it's, I don't think it's really clear what the effects are yet, yeah, but one big not. change is, you know, when you have physical communities, you know, you have your church friends, you have your bowling friends, and maybe you're in a couple of these communities at most, yeah. right? just because of constraints of location, time, you know, people that you can relate to, things like that. But with these internet communities, they're around one idea only. Mm -hmm. So if you go to R, no, 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 yes, you're not talking about uh, the Fed there. You're talking about, you know, gifts that start poorly and end well. It's (laughs) it's very, very narrow. And you're part of many, many more very narrow communities. I don't even know if I could even count how many little online groups I'm in. And I wonder how that'll change because each of those is so focused on just one topic. You have a much stronger belief or you know, if you are in church, you might not necessarily agree on non-church ideas, right? So you have to interact right. with those people. Or it's so like over bowling,
2: here- right? It's like you might go, you might like everybody in the group likes bowling, but they might have different political ideas, different economic ideas, and like, but and they're they forced off to interact. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah. forced to interact because of bowling.
1: Exactly. Kind of goes back to what we were saying in the last episode, where it's like the you know history's greatest fraud was agriculture. I feel like this new type of community is, it's kind of like that same line that you were saying with social media, right? Where it's like, oh, these communities are just as good, right? And no, I think they're probably not for those reasons. And also, I mean, if I like fall and break my leg and need somebody to <laughs> drive me somewhere. I'm not gonna, like, gonna ask somebody go R Donald. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna so you know Reddit. like tweet about it, right? Yeah. There's a few people I've met on Twitter who I could maybe ask, but most of my imagined communities are not reliable as like part of a social net. That's true. Right. Can you, you so, imagine going on Reddit and being like I broke my leg, I need someone
2: probably well, actually, actually, I could see, the
1: that thing. Going I could well. see yeah. Reddit actually coming through. Being on the that. better one. There, yeah. there was a good story on there not the other Twitter.
2: day about no. not Twitter. No. But Twitter people might like be like, I clumsy motherfucker. Somebody published <laughs> in uh, oh gosh,
1: like the Tokyo subreddit that they lost their passport in a coffee shop, and somebody else on the Tokyo subreddit found their passport and brought it to them at the airport like that's four amazing. hours later. That's amazing. Yeah. With so,
2: like, those things do this. happen. Japan is also just an incredible place. Yeah, but it's so like an English speaking subreddit.
0: <laughs> the question that I was posing, though, was less so about, like, oh, the real world manifestation of those is very real was when you have many strongly held convictions because you're in these niche Mm -hmm. groups, I'm curious how that will affect social fabric, right? Yeah. Good point. Like we're more
1: to discussing with people who disagree with
2: you because you just go to a different community when you want to talk about those things. Or maybe we're more confident of our beliefs than you would be, you know, like, like if it was was the fifties, it feels like there's way more people. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. If It was the fifties. And I like have this inkling in my head of like, oh, we don't need a federal reserve or something. Right. Then, like, if I go mention that to a few other people, the people I'd interact with are probably going to push back and be like, oh, well, did you consider this? Or, like, no, that's wrong because of this. So at least I'm interacting with other people. Whereas if I go to, like, you know, the end the feds subreddit (laughs) and I post that, everyone's going to be like, yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, this is why. So you get, like, it's the opposite of strongmanning your argument. It's like straw manning your own argument uh, yeah. all the other arguments well, and you, you know. never have to
1: fully think about it because people yes. will just like agree with you Yep. and in some ways that's great you know if you're like a gay kid growing up in Mississippi right yeah. now you, you can see that there are other people who believe this thing and that's, that's amazing true. right yeah. but also you know if you believe that like you know whites are the superior race or something you can find you a can lot of people who believe people. that too yeah. and you don't get the social consequences for it
2: yeah you don't get the like oh that no, you, you're wrong or something. Yeah, right? like, yeah. <laughs> You'll get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. But on the internet, yeah, you, on know, the internet. you can always find people who have the same exact belief as you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like the results, we haven't seen the full consequences yet, I don't think. I think we're what starting to get like. at it. Yeah. Starting yeah. to get to it, yeah. Although you, you do get some pushback now. Like I've noticed people at least in our age group and demographic trying to do more things like in person with their friends. I know you make, Nat makes a big effort to like organize like dinners and I don't know. You like I find there are more and more people like that who are, you know, if you live in the same city or even trying to organize meetups in other cities, like taking trips and things like people do seem to be pushing back a little bit. But the Internet is just so easy. Yeah. You know, it just makes it hard to to get out of that mentality. Just makes everything way
1: simpler. Yeah. Right. Like you're not going to even if it will make you happier to do the in-person stuff because it's more effort, right? Like the. The start costs are too high. The activation energy is too high. Yeah. And
2: so you just like default to the easier thing, even if it's not going to make you as happy. It's probably why texting like demolished phone calls, because it's just yeah. like when you text, you both don't need to be available at the same time. Right. I can send you a text now. You're bu- you're busy right now. We might not be busy in four hours, but I might be busy. You can still respond to me then. Yeah. Whereas to talk on the phone, you both need to be available at exactly the same time talking only to each other and meeting in person <laughs> is also even harder because you now have to be at the same physical location at the same time and both be available at the same time right so texting is just like
1: infinitely easier well yeah and back in the day you're only friends with people who you could like walk to see yep. right but now most of my friends are not in walking distance right.
0: so it's a very different world in that sense it's kind of the turn back the clock thing like the agricultural revolution side is it's the diet is back. cast, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, <get> going back. <laughs> we can push
2: back, but it's not going
0: to go yeah. back. Yeah,
2: although we're pushing back pretty strongly on the agricultural revolution in terms of like not overall, but in yeah. terms of like I would say today it's easier than than maybe not ever, but easier than it has been in the last hundred years to eat like a diet that would be more akin to a hunter-gatherer
0: i wouldn't say yeah. that turn back the clock on the agricultural revolution it's is not it turned back the clock. so far forward yeah yeah. From yeah. It it's back. not
2: turned yeah. back the clock but it's yeah. more you can make the decision for yourself yeah it nullifies the what, effect yeah. yes nullify yeah. the effect is yeah. probably the better way of putting it yeah
1: and that's actually kind of like seems to be a theme that repeats is that we come up with something and it makes our life worse for a while and then we can eventually figure out how we can use it to make our lives better while you know like trying to avoid the bad parts, keeping some of the good parts, yes. right? It's like yep. the internet has definitely made our social lives worse, but if you can use it intelligently, it can make it better, yeah. right? It's like it's great for scheduling things, but it's bad if you just like stay friends with people on Facebook, yeah. right? It's like agriculture is bad if you just, you know, eat wheat all the time, but it's good in that it allows, you know, 7 billion people to be alive right. and like the That's agricultural indeed. methodology yep. allows us all to eat, you know, a pound of meat a day, yep. right? Like without having to worry about it too much.
2: Yeah. Although, what you were saying in the last episode about Factory Farm just makes me worry about it a bit. <laughs> yeah. It's be, yeah. You know. um. So, the
1: last thing that he touches on that we should probably cover is happiness because we've been talking about progress and growth and, you know, population increases and science technology. But at the end of the day, most people are kind of motivated just by being happy. Right. And even if you argue the kind of greed hypothesis, it's like, well, greed is kind of like a subset of happiness, right? It's like people only want more money and stuff because they think that will make them happier. And kind of the point he makes here is that we don't really know if any of this has actually been good for our
2: well-being, right? Or right. self-reported happiness. Yep. He has this, uh, there was a section about the lottery ticket and or winning the lottery in a car accident. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got
1: two people and one of them wins oh, right. the lottery yeah. and one gets in a car accident, then in a year or two, they'll both be at basically the same level of happiness they were before. Because <laughs> we just reset the baseline really quickly.
0: Well, his framing is it's about objective conditions versus subjective expectations. So the one in a car accident, subjective expectation is probably pain, suffering, and you know maybe a slow recovery. Objective condition is recovery. Lottery ticket is a changed life in every which way, but at the end of the day you're the same guy. Well, and you're expectations totally change yeah right yeah, so exactly. it's, it's like you know you win the
1: lottery and you're not still thinking like oh i wish i had ten thousand dollars right now you're thinking like oh well i wish i had ten million dollars right. right and so you're still going to be disappointed right it's like this perpetual frustration and disappointment uh which kind of inspires him bringing buddhism back into the fold
2: again well before we go there the one other thing is that i wonder uh related to our previous tangent that we just went on with the internet mm-hmm. i wonder how much of a role the internet now is playing in terms of subjective expectations versus objective. Oh, It's definitely
0: raising right yeah because yeah. it's
2: like even if you let's say you grow up in uh incredibly poor part of the world you probably still see the riches of the richest people in the world whereas before you'd only see the riches of the people in your local area right you'd be like wow i wish i had a car right not like i wish i had a ferrari which i think he brings up that point somewhere or no? i think he brings up a point where it's like someone might say i, I want a cart And they get the part, they're super happy. But if they think, like, oh, I want a Ferrari, and then you get, like, a secondhand car, you're going to be disappointed. So it's fully subjective.
0: Someone showed me a
2: video of
0: Yacht Week. And it just made me a little sad. (laughs) It looks so sick. There's no way I'm going. What is Yacht Week? It's a week you spend on a yacht in Europe. It's, like, (laughs) three grand or something total. And it's looks awesome and i'm not going you know <laughs> but you didn't even but know it was the thing exactly
1: that's yeah yesterday morning i was fine about yeah. It.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I that's up. why you sound depressed on the podcast <laughs> yeah. No, i'm just kidding <laughs> you would rather be yachting yeah No, yeah, but that's that's a great example though it's like yeah. you didn't know it existed then you saw the video and now you're like well shit i wish i could go to that <laughs>
1: well i think that's a big part of why you know, social media does make you unhappier, right? Especially something like Facebook or Instagram, you're only looking at the highlights from other people's lives, right? And so you're seeing like, oh, you know, how come all these people are going on cool trips and I'm not, right? And it's like, well, that's, you know, one of their two trips a year, but you're just seeing like the people who went on trips, right? At the given time, (laughs) it's like, oh, how come they're like, in such better shape than I am or like whatever. It's like, oh, well, you know, there's like good lighting in the photo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got those Equinox overhead lights do the favors, right? But so it, it's so much easier to have those like little comparisons all the time. Whereas before, I mean, you know, you're living in a village of like 50 people and most of them are older and younger than you. And you're like, oh, yeah, I look pretty good. Yeah. Well, I'm a like, good looking person, yeah. right? And, you know, there's a very narrower range of wealth and availability of seeing wealth. So like, oh, yeah, like I'm pretty well off, like pretty happy with it. And so that access to information has definitely made us worse off psychologically. Yeah. Because I think we're all just sort of inherently nosy, too. Yeah. Right? It's like, even if we know a piece of information is going to make us unhappy, <laughs> like, we want the information still. Yeah. It's like the Pandora's box thing, yeah. right? Yeah. We're always going to open it, which is, yeah. like, a hard habit to try to get out of. Yeah.
2: If even possible. If possible. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and then he switches over to finding meaning and happiness through meaning or rather satisfaction or i guess
2: do you want to say the buddhism stuff
1: before because i think that we don't have to go into it i mean i think it was just interesting that he mentions buddhism here where it's like you know that is sort of the central tenet of buddhism is this eternal suffering or eternal frustration and you know happiness doesn't come from fulfilling the thing that you feel you're missing it comes from like escaping that wheel right like getting out of the habit of just you know constantly wanting more things and being obsessed with what's not in your present state right but then no. if you can be, you know, just fully present in you know where you are and what you have now, then you will at least be satisfied. You'll at least be like non frustrated, which is probably the the, the best, best as definitely. good as it gets yeah, as, good <laughs> as it gets for happiness,
2: right?
0: You can at least be content. In Buddhism, do they even use the word happiness or is it peace? what is the it's hard to say
1: right i mean like happiness as a word is like not
2: very helpful
1: right it's like yeah. partially a function of english too right that we have this word
2: happiness that doesn't really mean something Back, i was just going really to bring that up actually with buddhism right there's like the whole idea of like the reincarnation and escaping that cycle right but it's like reincarnation can just be the moment to moment i think that came away yeah moment to moment to moment reincarnation rebirth right so i wonder how much of this is also a function of like not understanding Sanskrit because remember that came up in that book, yeah, too. That like we like one guessing. guy just sort of made it up, yeah. This right? one like British scholar was like, yeah. he is kind of like his best guess. Like, we don't really have that good of a translation from Sanskrit to English, so there's a lot of like things, like a lot of ideas that could be like just mistranslated, yeah, or maybe not mistranslated, but not precisely what they meant. So maybe like a true Buddhist would maybe have a different interpretation than we're, we're well, getting. And then
1: language, too. Right? Language, like, exactly. You know, English is such a Christian-influenced language, and so it's going to talk about things in certain ways, whereas if you have a language built, you know, alongside a religion that thinks about right. happiness and psychological processes differently, you're going to have different words and understandings of right. things.
2: Like, maybe the word enlightenment is not really, like, in the relation to Buddhism, is yeah, not really what it yeah, means. it could be, like, freedom, right? Yeah. It, it like, could mean a lot of
1: things, so.
2: Yeah, that's just where, where I was going with that, is, like, we just might not fully know what the right word, like from happiness standpoint, like it might just be a language issue Yeah. that like we call happiness is also really, at least how we interpret happiness is a really weird goal. It's a tough goal, right? right? It's like, cause it's not really sustainable. Like you can be happy in, for a moment, you know, yeah. for like for about something, but it's hard to, it's also very ethereal, right? Yeah, that's what exactly. It's it like be- you I- ask
1: someone if they're happy and yeah. then they're like, huh, I don't know. It's like, well, maybe I'm not, right? Yeah. yeah. But
2: if you like observed them, they could, you know, be totally happy, right? It's right, exactly. It's, it's a very work. weird, yeah. Well, it's like I was thinking like if you ask anyone who has something like amazing happen, right? Whether they win like the championship in some sports league or they're, you know, sell their company or you know, whatever, like whatever they win a lottery, whatever it is. You ask them at that exact moment, are they happy? They'd be like, yes. Right. If you ask them like a week later, they'd probably be like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm okay He's pretty good. <laughs> In general, things are good,
0: yeah. right? But you wouldn't be like ecstatically happy. <laughs> when I was at spire, I met a uh, I don't know therapist, psychiatrist. I don't know what the exact term is, but he was influenced by his Buddhist practice. Hmm. So what he would actually help his clients with was he would reframe their thoughts on happiness with the word peace.
1: Um... So that was
0: the first part of his practice. Is during the first session he would do a kind of a line of inquiry that got them to. Realize that what they wanted wasn't happiness and that happiness was this fleeting thing It's kind of like the Jordan Peterson
1: stuff, right? It's order versus chaos, right? You mostly just don't want to be in chaos, right? And I noticed too that when I'm feeling the most unhappy, it's like when I'm in a chaotic state I feel like that's a pretty good way of framing it like peace or order, right? That's like a more stable version of Happiness. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess the, the only other section he's got here is like the end of homo sapiens in the future But we can probably save that Yep. Since he wrote a whole book on it, which we'll be discussing next week. (laughs) Um, And he gets much more into that. And he gets much more into
2: it, yeah. So we we will save all of that. But... I think that think, concludes think that our two-part episodes on Sapiens. Yeah. So, If you want the book, you should go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support and click through from the Amazon link. Yes. And uh, then go buy the book. And you, while you're at it, go buy Homo Deus too. Yeah, exactly. Pick up Homo Deus. You've got a week to
1: read it before that episode comes out. Yep. So uh, you can grab that. You can also grab some of the mushroom coffee that we were drinking during this episode, for slash think. A deal was having the Cordyceps elixir. Which he rather Delicious. liked. What did you think? It was fantastic. Yeah. It yeah.
0: did not taste like mushrooms. I don't even know what it tasted like. But it taste- tasted amazing. Yeah. Well, how do you feel? I feel great. Yeah.
1: We were also having some chilled uh, Jocko White tea during this episode, which you can get on Amazon. Through our link, so anything you click through and buy on Amazon from our site, we'll get a little cut of that, so it helps support the show. Uh, you can also check out perfectketo.com/think for all of your ketogenic diet-related needs. And last but definitely not least, kettle and fire. So for delicious bone broth, beef, chicken, you can get their chicken and mushroom at Whole Foods. Great stuff. Perfect if you're like feeling a little sick, or just want a little like nice evening treat. Uh, You can use it for like cooking too, which is like great for if you're making any kind of like stew or slow cooking meats.
2: And you can save a lot of money through the Think link. Yeah, kettleandfire.com. Yeah, kettleandfire.com/slash/think, and uh, yeah, it's up to like thirty percent off plus free shipping. So it's it ends up being a lot. So yeah, you can do that. If you want to know the books ahead of time, a lot of you guys have been asking. Uh, you can go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com, register for the email list um, where we announce the books ahead of time. And uh, by the time this episode comes out, we would have sent out another email. Know, so yeah. you would have missed out on one. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you can also follow us on Twitter where we often interact with people. I'm at the Rail Neil S at Adil
1: Majid and at Nataliasson. And, yeah, leave a review on iTunes. That's super Tell helpful. Your Tell your friends. Yeah, I think. Is that it?
2: Yeah. Let us know if you hated something we said, loved something we said. You got anything wrong. Oh, which well, I'm, sure
1: yeah, I'm sure we Yeah, we I'm sure did we always get
2: something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: yeah, any Any other thoughts Stuff related to the show? Book recommendations, uh,
2: article recommendations, we always like that. So. Yeah. There's yeah. also like things related to this that like you guys know that that we don't. So pretty much every week now we we hear from people who tell us something that's like on a related topic and could be an article, it could be a book, uh, could just be a fun anecdote. But we love getting those. so Keep yeah, sending them, send them our way. And uh, if you like a deal and want him to come back
1: in the future, let us know that too. <laughs> and then we'll uh, consider penciling him in for more
0: more made you think episodes. Any last words, a deal? <laughs> you get to sign off. Oh man. This was a great time. It's fun hanging out with you guys. And you'll it's, be back. it's also interesting seeing the tangents live. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like you guys need to get that button. Maybe I'll get it for you tanger guys <laughs> on the six sixth. We'll, we'll put it as like a, a
1: Patreon uh, reward tier. If we, if we ever set up a Patreon, yeah, it's like once we get up to you know a thousand dollars a month or something, then we'll get the tangent yeah. button. <laughs> all right, cool. We'll see you all next week.